0: to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 where we are going to discuss today um, what what are Lord Jesus models as the highest uh, calling among Christians High, highest calling among living Christians short of giving your life as a martyr uh, there is no higher, status that you can achieve in Christ's church than servant such service of course uh, it's not just serving in general uh, but service directed towards Christ's body it's 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 his beloved bride it, it it's his church and on the eve of his crucifixion he communicated that uh, he wanted his bride to be you know, well cared for while, while he was away, after he would depart uh, to be seated at the right hand of God. Um, and, and that desire for our Savior, uh, it, it's so passionate, so important to him that that the Last Supper, it's his final evening, it, it didn't consist of reclining. It didn't consist of... A, um, a last moment of rest during his final moments on earth, uh, uh, the moments before his weary body, uh, tired and weary, would endure the punishment for our sins on a cross. That that will, is what would happen to him in just a few hours. Noah rather than taking one last, you know, relaxing breather, a little time uh, for himself, uh, the Lord humbled Himself to assume the role that was assigned to the lowliest servant in any household. He, he washed his disciples' feet. Now, folks, if, if yours and uh, and my spirits will embrace what this principle, which we'll hear today, um, a divine principle placed before us, I, I can assure it will completely transform our lives. I've titled today's message uh, concerning those who serve. Also, I'm grateful that the fellowship luncheon uh, was last Sunday, and uh, that I didn't have to preach this message last Sunday. Because uh, if I had preached this passage last week, you know we might have all migrated over to the other building to eat, and nobody would have sat down everyone would have remained standing and just perpetually approaching one another and saying, can I get you anything? No, the person would say, can I get you anything? Is there anything you need? and Anything you need? And again and again, seeking to serve one another. We would have discovered, you know, Eating last isn't real difficult. Well, most of us are overnourished, as it already is. Staying 20 minutes afterwards, after everybody leaves, to wash a small number of dishes, to, to clean up a few tables, clear a few tables, Yeah, you know, that doesn't negatively affect our day. It doesn't degrade the outcome of the day. And rather, it's God's Spirit who indwells us, uh, that embraces service to Christ's body, is just supremely enjoyable serving is supremely enjoyable in the spirit of God. Uh, and it is that same holy spirit who supplies wisdom and discernment and who teaches us by God's word to recognize you know it's it's the sin. It's the sin lingering in our fleshly bodies, our weak bodies that it it's, it always nods back at us. The flesh always nods back saying, you know but I want to be first. Or I must hurry home. My couch is lonely. Or I've got better places to be. My calendar is so full already, and yet the man or the woman who's, who's filled with the Spirit of God assesses uh, opportunities, diverse opportunities that arise to serve Knowing that through divinely imparted wisdom from God's word, uh, it is sin that entices us. It's it's sin that urges us to you duck out of responsibility. But it's near impossible to wear out Luke chapter twenty two and verse twenty six. Um, Confronting the assumptions of those with worldly minds, Jesus asks his disciples this question Who's greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? The question is clearly rhetorical because Jesus immediately bounces back uh, with the conclusion of pop culture. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And I can imagine the apostles, or uh, uh, the disciples at that point, their heads bobbing in agreement um, just before Jesus continues saying, uh, but I am among you as one who serves. Folks, Jesus is so counter-cultural uh, to a world that always concludes that he Or she who reclines is greater than he or she who serves. Jesus had also just stated, But it is not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. To reinforce the lesson in a similar way, but in a, a different context, Jesus also said in Matthew 20, verse 26, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The first shall be the slave. In these varied contexts, Jesus assures his disciples, it is not this way among you. Notice, in neither of those passages does Jesus state that, you know, it's preferable that this way not be among you who call me Lord. No, he he is much more forceful in his language. Uh, Jesus assures that those who follow him... uh, For us, it is not this way with you. Be not like the world. And unlike the world, greater is the servant. The leader who would wish to be first uh, must become the slave to the rest. This is demanding material. Demanding material. Uh, concerning those who serve, but it's not impossible. Uh, We have one servant here, also one of our deacons, whose response at every request that has ever been made of him, it's always, whatever the church needs. He doesn't say whatever Pastor John needs. He doesn't have some unique loyalty to Pastor, please, Pastor John, uh, no, his loyalty is to his Lord Jesus Christ. There's another fine member uh, we we slightly inconvenienced one time. Um, I, I try not to make demands of people. Uh, um, really, I want all service to be in the spirit, and not because there's a heavy weight coming upon people. But uh, every every once in a long while, we get in a pinch, and uh, so I, I kind of hinted we desperately needed a task done. And his response was without hesitation. He looked me in the eye and said immediately, I would do anything for this church. sent shivers to my spine. He'd ask that I not bring this up, but... uh, One of your elders took an earned vacation day uh, today solely to welcome and embrace new members to the church. You know, it's the type of thing that Christians love to do. He gives glory entirely to God. He has a rotating schedule, can't make it every Sunday. Um, There's glory to God that his employer granted it. That he even had vacation days, which some of us I know do not. Um, But there are many... Like stories I could tell, um, but these these examples of devotion shouldn't bring us surprise, as Jesus was the ultimate example of serving His church, even to die for her on a cross. It should therefore then not be of any great amazement uh, that the Spirit of Christ uh, succeeds at replicating service, and sacrifice in the lives of every Christian. It's by God's Spirit, we, we are conformed to Christ. It is through God's wisdom in His Word, we are conformed to His image. Uh, but beware, beware. It is our sinful flesh and the spirit of darkness uh, that will replicate itself as well. The spirit of the world that tells us uh, but greater is he who reclines. We're bombarded daily with distortions of life's purpose. Distortions of our goal in the Lord. Um, Our families are immersed in a culture that teaches its children their highest pursuits in life must be Relaxation and recreation, not service, certainly not service to Christ. The world always offers a a warped sense of reality. It it ensnares us. uh, I find nothing in Scripture that even remotely resembles uh, spending every weekend at theme parks. or or any form of recreation or leisurely distraction that would impede faithful service to Christ and his church. During our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the, the apostle Paul stated, it is required of stewards... Stewards are servants of Christ Jesus. It is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Concerning those who serve, it's it's required that they be faithful. That is a conditional statement indicating that if you are not faithful, you're not a servant of Christ. And the statement is made in the wake of chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That that is Paul's discourse concerning the wise master builder. He applies it to every Christian in chapter 3, and therein Paul reassures us with this promise. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Each will receive a reward. You know, consequently, the reason that that I so love the topic of service, and and I, I say this purely, I love the topic of service to Christ's church, uh, but not because it gets things done around here. I say that with all honesty, not just because it gets things done around here, but because your service is so greatly going to benefit you when you see Jesus Christ. Your reward, your your eternal experience in heaven, uh, it's going to be enhanced by your service today. There's no getting around it. Jesus spoke so many times about storing your treasure in heaven, being focused On heaven. Uh, (laughs) My conscience is clear. It is clear. I I feel no selfish motivation at all when I preach this topic. Uh, If you know Christ as Savior, if you know that he, and trust that he died for your sins on the cross and rose again, um, devotion to service is in your best interest. In your very best interest, both for today and for the future, tomorrow, the eternal future will uh, will be impacted by your service today. And chapter 6 concerns those who serve. You know, massive growth, we will see, has uh, stretched the apostles to their limit. This is when a complaint arises from within the church. It's a complaint that will not, it simply cannot be ignored. Uh, The answer concerning faithful service is within. Let's begin reading in verse 1, Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among your from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer." And the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. If you're not familiar with the term Hellenist or Hellenistic, uh, Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had been born and raised in a a foreign land, a distant country. Uh, Some uh, are part of what would be called the the diaspora. You might have heard that term. It means, it, it indicates Jews who were dispersed in previous generations due to persecution. Their families were dispersed abroad, so they were raised abroad. Um, And it it was not uncommon for such Jews to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feasts. We know from Acts chapter 2 that at least some were converted at Pentecost to Christianity, and some evidently decided to take up permanent residence in Jerusalem But being Hellenistic, it ensures that uh, they originated from Greek-speaking cultures. By contrast, the native Hebrews in Jerusalem, they predominantly spoke Aramaic. That was their native language. And though some people in both of these groups were at least partially bilingual, some of the Hellenists could speak some Aramaic and some of the Hebrews could speak some Greek. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there was a natural language barrier causing them to socialize separately. Um, I, we aren't looking at a racism issue here, folks. Uh, think of it as uh, uh, a Spanish church today. It'd be very difficult for us to exist, most of us, to be able to attend a Spanish church. Likewise, if they're only Spanish-speaking, it would be difficult for them to uh, worship with us, not being able to understand. It's it's a a breach in understanding. It's a difficulty in translation. Some things are getting lost in translation. Uh, It was a barrier of language. And, well, resultantly, the Hellenists... Uh, which were probably a small portion, small element of the Jerusalem church, they saw that their widows were being overlooked. The Greek term there for overlooked, it suggests that uh, these Greek-speaking or predominantly Greek-speaking Hellenistic widows, they weren't given proper attention in the daily portion of serving food, daily assistance that was being distributed uh, by this primarily Aramaic-speaking church. Now, surely some Hellenistic widows, uh, some would have had their own money. Others would have at least had some kind of family nearby, some children. So some did not need this assistance. So verse 1 is probably looking at the poorest segment of Hellenistic widows, uh, those who are left alone. Later on, we'll read in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that uh, there are certain widows who are left alone. No family, no one to care for them. We're given the responsibility actually in Scripture of uh, our parents and our widowed mothers is, is the responsibility falls on the children first, not on the church. But there are always some who are left alone. They're called widows indeed in First Timothy five. Uh, it, it's a grave situation, very grave. Uh, these widows were left alone. They have no children to care for them, uh, little to no income, and they couldn't even speak up because they, you know, they couldn't communi- uh, communicate effectively with the Jews or the, the other the native Jews. Perhaps when assistance came by, the the men it, distributing it couldn't even really understand whether or not they were a widow or left alone. We don't know for sure. Uh, there, is, there is a barrier here. Uh, so verse 1 reveal, uh, reveals that there are other Hellenistic Jews who took up the cause for their own widows. I imagine this would have been Hellenistic men or Greek-speaking men who, who noticed there is a disparity here, uh, and they brought a complaint. They, they brought this complaint to uh, the apostles. What I find is that there is no attempt to discredit the complaint. No attempt at all to say, no, no, that's not happening in our church. What we find immediately is a remedy and it's specifically prescribed by the apostles to to respond to a legitimate complaint, folks. Verses one through six also do not prescribe a uniform procedure to address every concern that falls upon a local church or arises in the church. This is a unique situation, and recognizing the problem, the apostles are the ones who outline and who initiate the solution. There's absolutely no delegation by leadership here of problem solving. That, that is not the case. It isn't that, well, so you have a complaint, so then you give us your solution. Once in a long while, we'll have a little complaint here, nothing like this, but sometimes people come up with some very strange solutions. Rather, on our passage It's the leaders who prescribe the solution. And that solution is in verse 2. It involves calling the congregation together for an announcement. The apostles apostles want everyone to hear this together. and, And the first part is... Essentially, the first part is, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. That's the first thing they want the entire congregation to know. Uh, Essentially, the apostles state that that we would have to neglect what we are doing. Verse 4 reveals that as prayer and teaching in order for us to try to monitor that. that. That's never going to happen. Yeah, I don't want to create a hierarchy out of this, and that's not the purpose of the passage at all, but if you would like to create a hierarchy out of it, uh, prayer and the feeding of Christ's flock with the Word of God are at the top of the totem pole. Those will never be compromised in the church. Uh, God's people must never be starved for the Word, uh, therefore prayer is... And the ministry of the word must never be compromised for any other ministry. Not even for feeding widows. Folks, that, look, that tells a little something about how a local church should look. Uh, but be careful. Be careful. The apostles here are not saying we should not serve bread to hungry widows. That, that, that's not even a plausible scenario. What they are saying is, concerning those who serve, we already serve. And we're serving over here in the ministry of the Word of God and of prayer, and we'd have to neglect what we're doing in our service of the church in order to do what, uh, well, what some others could do. Remember, the ratio of church members to apostles in this scenario is about 1,000 to 1%. We've already discovered that uh, there's probably at least 12,000 in, in the Jerusalem church by this time, and there's only 12 apostles. The apostles can honestly say, you know, our, our calendar is already booked. When you think about it, the, the level of their efficiency in teaching is astonishing Um, And and we're going to speak to some of those reasons two Sundays from today. This is going to be a a three-part series on this passage. Uh, Today is concerning those who serve. Uh, Next Sunday is going to be concerning those who pray. And the following Sunday after that is concerning those who teach. But the apostles here in their role are Incredibly efficient, uh, that partially has to do that all primary doctrine and teaching, primary uh, essential doctrine is to be taught uh, with the congregation assembled together. It's called the assembly of the saints. uh, And that is so that everyone hears the same message. That's part of the reason that they called uh, everyone together for this announcement on feeding the widows. They said, "We, we don't want all of this to be passed ear to ear, and by word of mouth, the story is going to change by the third person it gets handed to. No, we, we do this all together. We announce it all together. And of course, they, we've learned in the last couple weeks, they're teaching everybody when they're all together. They don't rely upon hearsay to communicate important matters. Actually, word of mouth can be a disaster. Um, the apostles here announce everything to everyone to avoid any misunderstanding. In verse 3, although the announcement's made public, it's a public announcement, uh, I believe the following statement, if you can follow me here, is directed only at their Hellenistic brethren. This is a, a public statement to the whole church, but this statement is, if I'm right... Only to the Hellenistic brethren. It's not directed to the whole congregation. It's to the Hellenists who originally brought the complaint to the apostles. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So again, the apostles are going to decide uh, who's to put in charge, uh, but they ask that group, the Hellenistic group, um, give us some names. I'm told the uh, in the Greek too, it is it is able to be interpreted in that way that he's only they're only speaking here to the Hellenists in front of the whole congregation. I don't think it's directed at the whole congregation of roughly 12,000 or more people. Just think how cumbersome it would be to ask 12,000 seated together, uh, to immediately agree on seven men. It'd be very difficult, but to the much smaller Hellenistic group, they say, choose from yourself seven men whom we can put in charge of this task. Um, why do I think that? Why do I conclude that? Uh, First off, they're the offended party. Why would we ask the much larger group that is native Hebrew uh, to determine who should serve the Greek widows? Instead, ask the Greeks who brought the complaint who they trust to serve the Greek widows. Um, Secondly, in addition to that, all seven names that are chosen are all Hellenistic Greek names. They chose all Greek names. That would be unlikely to happen if you were to solicit a larger congregation uh, that were all, uh, are mostly Aramaic. Um, I, think, I think that they're pointing this towards the group. I could be wrong on that um, In fact, it could even be that the apostles here asked the small number of Hellenistic men who brought the complaint on the behalf of the widows, hey guys, you tell us, who's trustworthy? Who should we put in charge of this task? Uh, Brethren, you give us seven names of men with good reputation. We want them full of the spirit and with wisdom. Uh, Whom your Hellenistic widows would trust to continue bringing them men uh, to bring, bring them bread every day. Um, probably even men who would be able to converse with these widows in their native language or their own language of Greek would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, and they chose seven Greek-named, uh, Greek-speaking type men. I doubt there was any contention. I, I don't think there was any contention in this meeting. In verse 5 it says that the apostle's statement found approval with the whole congregation. Think of this. Th- this issue is raised and uh, in front of the whole congregation they would have immediately agreed with one mind as we would as well here today when we when we see Christ appear in the clouds we don't want it said of this church that there were widows left alone who we did not feed. Who'd want that? They're like, no way. It's, it's handle it. Whatever you've got to do, handle it. And uh, this was a no-brainer for the congregation. How many Hellenistic widows are we talking about here? those who are left entirely alone, without any family, any means at all to care for themselves. Uh, how many exactly? There's no way to know. The Hellenists themselves were the much smaller group of this congregation. I envision, you'll have to decide what you do, I envision the widows to number less than 50. In fact, I envision it to be A good bit less than 50. What about 25? Were there 25 Hellenistic widows left alone? I don't know. Then you ask, why did the apostles appoint seven men? It's the next mystery. Why not 12? You've got 12 apostles. Why not have 12 men? One commentary asked, Uh, nobody knows. I could find no practical answer whatsoever in any source that I read. And I read quite a few on this. No obvious answer exists. So do you want my answer? Take this with a grain of salt. But I believe that they had one man assigned to deliver bread for each day of the week. Deliver 25 flatbreads, basket of fish, any seasonal produce that comes in from the farms. Uh, This isn't rocket science, folks. Not not a huge job to deliver food to a small number of Hellenistic widows. Uh, Perhaps even the widows, the Hellenistic, would gather to one location. They'd receive all their food together and then migrate to their homes with their food. We don't know. If it's a small number, it would not be difficult for a man to go door to door and distribute loaves of bread. Um, These seven men weren't receiving full-time jobs. They remained responsible for their own families, uh, so they must have maintained their own jobs. But on one day of each week, each man was assigned this responsibility. Withdraw a little bit of money out of the benevolence fund. Go buy some food and make sure it gets to these widows. Take it where it needs to go. And verse 6 tells us that they brought these men before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them. You know, through this laying on of hands, the apostles are declaring that we, we give our endorsement. Uh, these men are, are agreeable, they are responsible, they're godly men. Uh, we're putting them in charge of this task in front of you all today. And uh, they're not becoming their own entity. It's the apostles putting them in charge. And, and as the apostles laying hands on them, these seven men don't become their own work of the Lord separate from the church. No, they remain under the apostles' authority, uh, but the apostles are placing them in charge of a task. And uh, these men have agreed they will devote themselves to pure and undefiled religion, visiting uh, orphans and widows in their distress. We'll do that. One day a week, I'm there. Be more reliable than the mailman. On my day that I am to serve. Uh, The laying on of hands, it's symbolic to to charge them to this ministry. It it also indicates their approval of these men in front of the whole congregation. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about ordination a little later in Acts, uh, but this does not appear to be ordination. It appears more so to be an endorsement of these men, um, a public endorsement. Also, I'm going to agree with uh, Alistair Begg, who I recently uh, listened to concerning this topic in this passage, and the notes in your MacArthur Study Bible uh, that these men are not the first order of deacons in Scripture. Nor does this passage outline a process of selecting deacons. Th- that office of deacon, which, which means servant, deacon, mean, deacon means servant, identified as a servant, that will... That will be applied uh, to men later who are identified in Scripture as having already served. They've already served the church faithfully in some capacity. This is not that. These men are specifically chosen to address a one-time situation, a complaint. Folks, answering complaints is not the means of selecting deacons in the qualifications of deacons in first Timothy chapter three. It also includes, they must first be tested. So, so I don't believe uh, that this gives a selection process, uh, that selection process at all and MacArthur. Um, they both conclude that per, the perpetual office of deacon, it was not established until much later than this. Uh, my personal observation is this. You might pros me You're going to disagree with me. I know it. There is no way that these seven could be the first deacons. You say, Pastor, why is that? It's because the ministry that is assigned to them was already active and established by other men. For some time, there had... Clearly, already existed a ministry of serving widows every day, bringing them bread, that role filled by numerous other men. But because of the cultural and language barriers, some of the widows were being overlooked. The charge to these seven is not new, it's to ensure that this ministry continues And actually expands even, uh, but it had already been established by numerous other men who had been perpetuating this same ministry already. This is not something new at this point in time. It is to address a problem for Hellenistic widows. Folks, the the point of this passage, it's not to establish a new order of deacons or a way to, uh, to select deacons. It is placed here as Luke's way of introducing two men, Stephen and Philip, and to tell us where they originate. Because these two will now enter this narrative as very prominent actors in just a few verses. If we did not possess this paragraph to find out where they came from and to find out that they were faithful men, we would all be left wondering when Stephen comes up in just a few verses, where did this guy come from? Where where did these two guys, Philip and and Stephen, come from? Did they just drop out of the sky? No, Luke reveals to us that they were chosen as part of a group of men who were known for their good reputation for being full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and and of those whom the apostles could trust to serve. It's our introduction. Um, We will see both men more accurately fill the role of evangelist in just a few verses, uh, while this ministry of distributing daily bread is going to be very short-lived. Very short-lived. In about four or five more verses, Stephen is going to get snatched, He is going to get drugged before the council. He's going to preach to them the gospel and the Jews are going to kill him. And immediately after Stephen's death, a great persecution will arise where Saul begins ravaging the Jerusalem church. And uh, we are going to be told in just a very short period of time, all the Christians are going to get driven from their homes and scattered throughout Judea and Samaria so, so very so. This is not a permanent order of deacons. Very soon there will come an abrupt end, at least to the organized nature of distributing bread to widows. This isn't some permanent ministry that is going to take off and expand and other things. Uh, no, but but the apostles don't realize this Steve, stoning of Stephen is just around the corner. They they appoint these men of high character. Uh, to this truly important responsibility of feeding widows. And we can learn a whole lot from this passage. Here's a few takeaways, a few timeless takeaways from this passage. Concerning those who serve. First and foremost, in this passage, the apostles reveal we can't do it all. This is very helpful to me because pastors often find themselves concluding, if there's nobody else to do it, then I've got to find a way to do it myself. Even if such demands begin to pinch off my you know, preparation for teaching, which for one sermon I've said before, takes me about 20 hours for one sermon each week. Other lessons on Wednesday evening and other times are additional to that, but usually shorter preparation. But there are times a pastor or elders will feel, we've got to make this happen. No. No. Additionally, this passage assures us that pastors and elders don't have to visit every widow in distress. If the apostles admit, we can't do it all, Surely there is no pastor or elder who could visit every widow or visit every person who shut in a home or or hang every shutter when the storm comes or mow the church lawn every week or teach every Sunday school class or clean the bathrooms weekly, etc., etc., etc. Who could possibly do that? I can do some of it. Unlike the 12 apostles, I don't have a 1,000 people that need to be taught each week. Uh, but sermon preparation takes the same amount of time, whether you're preaching to 150 or whether you're preaching to 1,000. And a pastor cannot neglect prayer or the ministry of the Word. That's number one. Application number two, every church body consists of many members who can serve. There are some who serve primarily through prayer and uniquely in the teaching of the word. Others can deliver food to widows. Others can visit the members who are sick, hospitalized, lonely, shut in in nursing homes, as we have some members in this church. Can't get to church on Sunday. Folks, visitation is not a role reserved for leadership. Visitation, according to Matthew chapter 25, is the responsibility, and, and we will each be assessed by Jesus Christ uh, for our own commitment to such ministries. Jesus says, when I was sick, you visited me. It's his body. I was grew up in a a tradition, a denomination, very liberal bent. Most of you know that, but if you're a new, uh, new attender today... Um, the way that I was brought up was, uh, well, growing up as a kid, I was like, well, what do, what's that pastor do up there? And what was assumed by all of us, well, they, they go to the hospital and they hold people's hands, and that, that's what they do. They go from hospital to hospital as people get old, and they do funerals and everything. Um, well, we do. I'm, I do do that. I'm not to be the only one doing that. The other thing with the ministry, uh, the, the tradition that I grew up in, there was no preaching of the word. So the pastors there had all kinds of time to do different things. But this expectation does not fall solely on pastors. Others can mow the lawn, work the nursery, clean the bathrooms, sing in the choir, teach Sunday school, set up for luncheons, Paint the rooms, etc., etc., etc. I can join in on each of these once in a while. I actually enjoy doing them once in a while, but I can't do everything all the time. Neither can Anthony, neither can Steve. uh, An elder who would try, they'd only be stealing your reward. That same pastor would be more faithfully discharging his duty by asking, Where are you? What are the priorities on your totem pole? What is your schedule? Relaxation? Recreation? Is that what Christ has called us to? Greater is he who reclines? No, rather our Lord said, I am among you as one who serves. Finally, serving requires character. Every Christian ought to display the same character that is found in these seven men in the passage. Be of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Be able to submit themselves to the Lord's service when leadership places them in charge of tasks and make themselves available to Christ church one day per week. A day per week? Oh, pastor, you've really stepped over the line now. You've really done it. No, I haven't. On average, if you have prioritized your life, you should be able to serve Christ one day a week beyond Sunday and Wednesday, which is organized for prayer and Worship and teaching, it's, those aren't occasions of service, they're occasions of prayer, though we do serve in these capacities. Deliver, delivering bread on one day a week, it's not that hard. Mowing the lawn on one day a week is not hard. Serving is not hard. Uh, putting a lesson plan together for Sunday school one day a week is not hard. Vacuuming one day a week, not hard. Meeting to practice music one day a week, not hard. Folks, this, this is not proposing too much. Visit a member of this church who is sick or shut in one day a week. Folks, have you noticed that any of these that I've mentioned, and I would also believe of the passage assigned here, None of them expect a person to punch in for eight hours. For how long then? I don't know. However long it takes to deliver the bread. However long it takes to mow the lawn. However long it takes to paint the classroom. However long it takes to visit a nursing home. However long it takes to put a lesson plan together or to practice songs. Do you follow me? Serving isn't that hard. We have several people here who serve three days every week. Their reward in heaven will be great. But but imagine serving just one day a week on one day—be fifty-two times a year. Think of what that would do in a lifetime. Finally, what is required? What does it take? uh, what were these apostles looking for when they, they were going to place people in charge? Uh, cons- parameters concerning those who serve. Um, were they going to put just anyone in charge? It, this is an important task. They're just going to say, oh, I'll just scramble together a few people. Anybody will do it. Um, Mike, you know, adult Sunday school, that happens every week. You know... Hopefully you can be there. If you make it, great. You don't make it, you know, we'll find something to do. If you feel like putting something together, you know, try not to forget to show up. Or like to Tim and any others who, who help him and all Tim, we've got mowers in the shed. They're there. If you prefer relaxing, yeah, I, I, I guess we can hire a commercial company to come in and knock it back down when it's knee high. And uh, then Tim, you know, you know, give it another whirl. If you feel like it, give it another shot. You know, Tammy, if you, if you find time, you want to put up the slides and print out the music, and and uh, you know, uh, you feel like doing it, fine. If you're not able to get that done, we'll we'll just I don't know, we'll, no big deal. We'll just do something else. Or Carl and Becky, you know, kids club. If uh, if you find something to do. The last minute that you prefer is better. Uh, you, you decide you won't be there. You, we'll, fi- we'll figure out something to do. Doesn't work that way. No ministry works that way. No service of the Lord works in such a way. You follow me? Leadership, um, I, I speak to Anthony and Steve uh, regularly about such things and about most everything. And we have to assign people to tasks who are dependable. They respond to leadership. Um, We aren't going to place someone in a task or in charge of a task or in charge of a classroom or in charge of a ministry who does not respond or will not receive direction. The job won't get done. And that is not acceptable. Of course, they have to be those who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit, having wisdom, etc. Foremost concerning those who serve is from First Corinthians chapter 4. It is required that the Lord's servant must be found faithful. That faithfulness to Christ is going to change your life now and throughout all eternity. That's all I can say. Let's pray.